Is this live? Are we on? Hey, everybody. Uh, welcome to another Dispatch Live. Uh, I'm Steve Hayes. Happy to be joined tonight by Haley Bird. Uh, Haley Bird Wilt, I have to say now. Uh, I knew her when she was just Haley Bird. Um, <laughs> before we get started talking about Haley's fantastic magnum opus. Uh, I want to let you in on some news. We've had requests from our membership for quite a while that we make the Dispatch Live available as a members-only podcast, which would allow you to stream it in a podcast setting uh, without the video. Um, we're happy to tell you that we've figured that out. Uh, some good work from Ryan Brown on our staff. Justin Fritz, uh, our intern Emma, um, to add Dispatch Live as a podcast in your podcast feed, follow the directions in the email with the details about today's Dispatch Live. We sent that yesterday. It has all the details. If you still got that email, we tried to make it simple. Um, even I understood it, so it, it must have been pretty simple. Um, but let us know uh, if if you have any questions about that. Hit us at members at thedispatch.com. We'd be happy to answer any questions and you can start getting these directly in your podcast feed if you miss them when we do this at night. A um, couple quick notes. The Members Only Podcast is currently available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Overcast. And in order to get Dispatch Live published as a podcast, we have to take the audio right from this YouTube stream. That'll take a couple hours to edit and make sure the quality is, uh, the, the audio is uh, high quality, but we want to get it published as soon as possible. So we'll we'll do minimal editing so you can have it the next day. Uh, again, glad to, to make this available to members only. Um, glad that so many of you sent us this request. We listened to it. It made a lot of sense to us and we worked on coming up with a solution. So happy to have that as a solution. Happy to make that possible. Again, hit us with questions on how to do this if you have them at members at the dispatch com. Uh, with that housekeeping out of the way, Haley, welcome to Dispatch Live. Thank you. Uh, it's very good to have you here. Um, this is not a terribly uplifting topic, but as I prepared for tonight, and I've got about a million questions I want to ask you, and we will not get to all million. Um, it, it is encouraging. Um, there, there was some good that that came out of this, and we're a long way from from I think really addressing the genocide that that you wrote about uh, in a comprehensive way. But these are steps that that perhaps wouldn't have been taken, um, and there were lots of times in the telling of your story when it looked like something might not happen. Um, so I want to start really, really big picture, if I can, and ask some, you know, what what probably will sound like fairly basic questions. But, uh, you know, I think for, for people who aren't paying attention to every twist and turn of of this story and, and what's been happening, they might be useful. We'll move on from those pretty quickly and get to some some more detailed questions about your piece and your reporting. But maybe the best place to start is to just ask you, who are the Uyghurs? They're a, a Turkic, mostly Muslim uh, ethnic group in uh, a northwest region of China. Um, and there's about 12 million of them. Um, the region has, I believe, switched hands from the Soviet Union to China at one point. But for hundreds of years, uh, the, I've, I've actually been reading a, hit, a history book about the region. But um, Chinese, various Chinese government leaders have sort of tried to make the region 
more Chinese. And that has involved bringing in ethnic um, Han uh, uh, Chinese people to live there. That has involved encouraging marriages between ethnic minorities and the ethnic majority. Um, that has involved ethnic discrimination by officials. And I, and I really do recommend for uh, dispatch members, uh, our readers, to read a book by Nuri Turkle called No Escape that really dives into what's happening um, in Xinjiang and, and what, what the genocide has been like. I think a lot of Americans sort of lack the context of just how totalitarian the Chinese government is. Like we know in theory, but when you read a book about, you know, if a woman gets pregnant before a certain number, I believe three years is what Nuri wrote in his book, they're forced to have an abortion. That that was happening before the genocide. Um, and a, a book that sort of opened my eyes also that I would recommend, I actually read it in high school and, and David, uh, Nancy French, David's wife, um, helped write it is by Bob Fu, God's Double Agent. Um, you know, you hear a lot about Chinese students don't learn about Tiananmen Square and, and about human rights abuses in China. I didn't learn about those things uh, in high school here in America. And, um, you know, reading books like that just really emphasizes how like totalitarian and, and evil the regime there is. Um, and so, yeah, that, that is sort of in a nutshell um, the situation, uh, if, if you want to get a little bit more in detail, uh, since the, the U.S. government said um, in its genocide determination last year that um, since 2014, the Chinese government has forcibly de detained more than a million uh, Uyghur Muslims, um, including also a, a few other ethnic minority groups, Kazakhs, Kyrgyz, um, a, a few others as well from that region. Um, people have testified about being raped and tortured in the camps. Um, and of course, there is this problem of forced labor. It is a massive um, setup. The Chinese government, they have, they have not only been creating factories in Xinjiang for, the, for detain, detainees in the camps to work at, but they have also been shipping detainees or, or Uyghurs out of the region after they graduate from re-education um, or even just people who haven't been in the camps are pressured to go work in other parts of China. And that's also sort of goes back to this hundreds of years of making these people more Chinese. Like if, if you expose them to other parts of China or you force them to work in other parts of China, you're not gonna have women of childbearing age in Xinjiang. Um, and, and that's another component of this also is just a massive effort to um, forcibly sterilize women uh, in Xinjiang. And it, it has really slashed birth rates um, a lot. There's an Associated Press story that sort of dives into that. I believe from 2019, maybe 2020, um, that sort of gets a little more detail in that. It's it's hard. I mean, one of the things I was so struck by in your reporting, it, you almost have to look for this information, right? I mean, if you're a, if you're the average news consumer, there's not a ton of reporting on this. It, you know, it'll flash across the front page of the New York Times, or the Washington Post every now and again. Doesn't get a ton of attention on television uh, television news. Uh, there are longer places in magazine journalism, places that take a deep dive. Why is it that it doesn't get more attention uh, in the mainstream press? I think there's like a willful like blindness to it. And we've seen that with a lot of entrepreneurs. And I, I mentioned it in the story is um, like Elon Musk, for example, opened up a, a Tesla showroom in Xinjiang, like I believe earlier this year. Um, and he hasn't said anything about the genocide. Um, you have other people like Chamath Palihapitiya. He said, nobody cares about the Uyghurs. Um, he said that on a podcast and it's, it's almost, and, and we get into this in the story, like this is a, people are really 
deeply like connected here economically. Um, and that is partly why. And I, I do want to give credit, the New York Times, Washington Post, also BuzzFeed News. They have done like incredible investigative journalism, just confirming all of this. Um, right. And like like satellite imagery leaked uh, official documents from the Chinese government. So it's it's not for lack of media coverage. It's for lack of like leading I don't know. Entrepreneurs, lawmakers have cared about it, but the, it's not their number one. A lot of them, not their number one issue, because a, a lot of Americans aren't super uh, focused on foreign policy. Um, I don't, and, and it's not an easy answer. It's not an easy fix, and that right. makes it tough too, right? right. It, it's I mean, more it's a difficult yeah. fix. Yeah. The more attention, the more attention it gets, the harder the the problem seems. The more intractable, intract, intractable the problem. Seems uh, if you look at um, if you look at the coverage that we have had, and you're right, there've been some some you know really unbelievable investigative work. They stand out because they are so rare. It's hard to get information. Mm-hmm. It's hard to get information, accurate information out of China broadly. Definitely, particularly hard to get accurate information out of Xinjiang. Right, and and some of the reporters who have done excellent work on this got kicked out of China. Like right. they're like they lost their ability to go report there. Um, so it that is definitely also a huge component of it. It's it, it's really hard to get information out of there because it's it like there are still people there living in their homes who have access to the internet. Some part parts of, parts of the internet, not all of the internet, obviously, um, who can communicate, but they are under surveillance. They they feel intimidated. They can't talk about what they're experiencing there. And that's a lot of the problem too, is like there's, there's Uyghurs and people here in the United States who have family members there who like, if their family members haven't been detained or they haven't lost track of where they are, haven't heard from them in years, if they are still living and still able to talk to them, they're not able to have candid conversations about what's right. going on. They're yeah, not. You, you get into to the story. I'm, I'm not sure I'm pronouncing your name correctly. Rushan mm-hmm. Abbas. Mm-hmm. Um, tell us a little bit about what's happened in that instance. Mm. So her her sister, her older sister, um, Rushan started this nonprofit called the Campaign for Uyghurs. Um, and I was I was really grateful. She was in the middle of international travel. She was able to sit down with me, grab coffee, and, and talk about all of this. And um, she she's an American citizen. She grew up in Xinjiang, but she's been in America for decades. And um, I just I emphasize that in that section because. It shows that American citizens are facing retaliation from the Chinese government in the, in various ways for what they're saying here in America. So Rushan, she she said something during this um, I think tank conference or or like a panel in 2018. She she spoke about the genocide. Um, it was I believe the Hudson the Hudson Institute. Um, less than I I believe it was like within the week. I need to check the timeline, but it was days after that um, her sister disappeared. And she, like she wasn't the first um, on on Rushan's husband's side of the family, they have two dozen family members who who they haven't heard from um, since I believe 2017. Uh, they don't they don't know where they are. They assume they're in the camps. They might have been um, forced to go work somewhere else in China. They don't really know. Um, but it's it's terrible. And there's people here in the United States, hundreds of people, and I, I get into this later in the story, who have escaped or who are, who are trying to avoid going um, somewhere where they won't be as safe as the United States, who are stuck in like bureaucratic limbo. So it, we're not, in America, we're not supporting them enough. We're not giving them enough assurances. People that we have said are victims of genocide. 
we are not prioritizing them either as, as people seeking asylum or as refugees. Um, but part of what Rushan and, and her, her organization does is, is advocate for um, Uyghurs, for, for the other ethnic minorities in Xinjiang. Um, and they helped sort of fight for this forced labor bill to pass. Um, and, and that's the section we'll be publishing tomorrow um, on the website. Uh, recently, they've been working in other countries to try to force action uh, in similar in, in Europe and in, and in other places to get other countries to sort of stand up and stop importing slave labor products. Yeah, I'm very eager to, to uh, end our conversation with your assessment of how that's going, because you report that this is, you hope that this is a model, the advocates hope that this will be a model, and it sounds like there's something of a mixed picture, uh, at least as we look forward. Let's, let, let me start um, on, the, on this legislation specifically. What's the genesis of the legislation? Where did it come from? Who were the main players? And what were they thinking when they first came up with this? Mm -hmm. So I, I'm glad you asked that. And part of why I appreciated sort of the, you gave a lot of bandwidth to publish a huge story, just yeah, in terms we, of length. Can we just set? Let's. How many words was this? It was twenty. It was twenty thousand words. <laughs> which I will say, I thought it would be five thousand when I went into it, and I was like, oh, like maybe I should do more. And it just. I kept think we growing. talked about six at the outside. Right. What's funny is I could good. still you write. Know, but it was good. It was I could good. still write a lot more. Um, yeah. It's and it's almost a two-year effort, so it, it sort of tracks that, but. Anyway, back to your original question. Part of why I appreciated um, just the ed ed editorial freedom that the dispatch provides is um, I was able to sort of recognize a lot of these congressional aides um, by name. And part of reporting this story is these people worked really hard to make this happen. This is something that they are all universally really proud of being having been involved in. Um, like people who have worked in Congress for decades, like this is like their bill you know, um, that they are really grateful to have had the opportunity and, and to have had the influence to help uh, pass it. Um, so and anyway, um, Scott Flipsy is the guy who sort of came up with this. And I heard that from various sources. Um, and um, he is a longtime human rights policy aide. He, he works on the China uh, Congressional Executive Commission on China. And it sort of came about, I talked to Nuri Turkle, and he told me sort of the backstory of this, but he, um, he remembers having sort of been on the sideline of events with, with Scott. And um, it was as they were working on a different Uyghur response bill. It was a, a different bill, the Uyghur Human Rights Policy Act, something I, I would have to check the full title again, um, it, which was more focused on sanctions. It was more of a typical human rights bill. Um, but at, at that time, Scott was sort of thinking, like, what more can we be doing? Um, and it, the, the policy details are tough. Like, this bill disrupts hundreds of billions of dollars in trade. And if you look at the fine print, it gives the American government really strong tools to decouple with China, not just in Xinjiang, but in broader China, because other parts of China are receiving inputs in various industries from Xinjiang or from other places that have had these forced labor transfers. Um, so it's really far reaching. And, and uh, some people were sort of uncomfortable because it, it, it did touch the world of trade policy a little more. Um, and so anyway, Scott had been sort of talking about how do we do this? Um, and, and then came this October 2019 hearing that the Cong Congressional Executive Commission on China had about forced labor in Xinjiang. Um, 
and they talk to, there's a point in the hearing, I, I mentioned it sort of at the beginning in the story, but you can go back and listen to it. Um, Jonathan Stivers, who was staff director of the CECC, you can see him on C-SPAN sit like seated behind Congressman McGovern. And um, he sort of mentioned, they were like discussing, should we ask this question? And um, McGovern asks the panel, he, he, you can tell he's frustrated when he asks and who's, this. Who's Congressman McGovern? Where's he he's, from? He's, Democrat, Republican? He is a Democrat from Massachusetts. Massachusetts. He is the uh, chairman of the rules committee. And at the time, I believe he was the chair. Yeah, he was chair of the CECC at the time. Um, and now I'm pretty sure he's co-chair. This is this whole thing. Um, and he, you can tell at, like at this point in the year, it's like halfway through. He just asks, should we ban all imports from Xinjiang? And when you watch it, the panelists are sort of like one of them says, oh, like that will be really, like that'll have far reaching impacts, you know, but the other people are like, yes. And, and one of the most, um, I don't know, clear answers came from Adrian Zenz, who is a German researcher who really has done really important work um, sort of unveiling this genocide. And he said something like that would send like the strongest message to Beijing than anything else, because it's and, and later in the story, McGovern says this was a consequence the Chinese government wasn't expecting. And everyone who, who talked to me for this is hoping, really hoping that other countries do follow suit, that they do take an example from this, because, you know, it might not be as powerful if it's just the United States doing it. But if you sort of have a really strong coalition rooting out forced labor from supply chains, it it like it hits the Chinese government hard in a time when they're already struggling with their economy. Like it's it's a sensitive topic right now for them. Yeah. Um, anyway, that's sort of how it started. And after and that, what? sorry, Go ahead. after after that, the, the CEC staff, McGovern sort of gave them the thumbs up, like they sort of finalized this and they um, they put together a report, comprehensive report on forced labor um, in the region and, and they finalized the legislation to introduce it. Yeah. And, and and what kind of products is this likely to affect? I mean, you've got this line um, in the story somewhere near the beginning where you say you probably own products made by forced labor in Xinjiang. Mm -hmm. It's it's really widespread and um, definitely textiles. Uh, I, I believe it's one fifth of the world's cotton supply comes from Xinjiang. <coughs> Sorry, I need some water. Um, it's also solar panel components. Um, I, I saw an estimate that was nearly half of the world's polysilicon supply comes from there. So it's it's just deeply like entwined in our supply chains, but it's not just that. Like it's, it's a lot of other components too. Um, like there was a sugar manufacturing uh, facility, a sugar processing facility that um, had allocations of forced labor. It's it's really in a, and, and there was a story just this week. Um, I believe it's the Intercept. I would need to check again, but they they reported it's in like construction materials. Like they're they're using uh, slave labor to to produce components that are coming here to the United States that people are using to construct buildings or, or things like that. Um, and then there was another one. I there was another one, but I can't remember. I, New York. Oh, it was car. It was car uh, like critical min minerals for electric vehicles, which is yep. sort of uh, has been reported before. But this one um, went into a lot more detail. It was New the New York Times, I believe, yesterday. Um, it's it's really widespread. And I, tr I hope I got it across in the story that this won't solve it entirely um, because it is it's hard to detect. There was another one that you just wouldn't like a seafood processing plant had received a forced labor transfer of Uyghurs who were uh, forced to go to that region to work there. Um, 
And it's really interesting watching there are sanctions compliance companies that do this work. And the Chinese government was not super smart about it when they were starting these forced labor transfers because they were the companies that were involved would do public announcements of, look at this charitable thing we're doing. We're bringing in these ethnic minorities to come work for us. And it basically like we're doing like we're involved in forced labor. <laughs> it's it, it's it, but it's in Mandarin. And so companies have to be able to have the resources to like either translate that or, or find the news sources. And um, so there's companies. Um, there's one called Caron that uh, that actually reported that one about the seafood uh, facility, but they they find all of that material, publicly available material, and track down places where it's really likely that forced labor is happening. Um, and it like having seen how that works, you know it is possible to check your supply chains. And and I do want to emphasize that companies say, oh, it's impossible for us to do this kind of work. And it takes resources. It's it can be difficult, but it is possible. There are people who do this for a living, who have really extensively researched public uh, public knowledge, um, like geographic locations. If you're near an internment camp or, or a concentration camp, like you're really likely that industrial park is likely to be complicit in forced labor, um, things like that. But it, it's really alarming. It's, it's a lot of products that are, um, and even places that are trying to move their supply chains are really like, there was a report that these people are actually using DNA testing on the cotton to see if it's Xinjiang long staple cotton. And um, companies are just the companies that have pledged to leave the region are being found to have like you still have this cotton in your supply chain. Like where where is it coming from? Because um, either they're buying still buying cotton from other parts of China and those plants are actually bringing it in still from Xinjiang. And there was reporting in BuzzFeed News about that also, um, I believe, end of last year. But um, it's hard to avoid. And, And that's why that's why Congress felt the need to act. So Jim McGovern raises this with this question at this very important hearing. Um, you know, clearly something that will affect company, well, lots of American companies, companies across the world, as you noted, have a significant economic impact. Um, you report quite a bit on the pushback from these companies as this ball got rolling, as this as this started to gain some momentum. Um, but the companies are in sort of a weird position, right? Because they don't want to be seen as openly opposing this, right? The, they no. would be labeled pro-genocide. Yeah. Um, but they, at the same time, they were coming up with excuses, looking for ways to weaken the effectiveness of mm-hmm. this. What What was that process like, and how did that? How did the the pushback that came from these companies affect the way the bill? Uh, proceeded as as they worked it out the de- details. Mm-hmm. So so early on, the big thing that bothered companies was not so much the bill itself because they didn't think it could pass. It was the fact that the Congressional Executive Commission on China had named them in the report. So there are the and and in the bill itself, there was a section of findings that said, you know, whereas this has been reported, whereas Coca Cola, um, several different companies. Are, are implicated in forced labor. So um, the week after they introduced it, there were people calling Congressional Executive Commission on China staff and saying, like, what are what are you doing? It was, it was, it was Can you take our names aggressive. Out. Take Literally, our names that's out. what they said. Take so. our names out. And and the sense I got was a lot of these lobbyists had not seen anything that direct, like in their entire time lobbying for various corporations. Um, so a lot of it was was just public image concerns. 
<laughs> Sorry, my kid has a cold and I think I have it. Um, so that, that was the main part. That was the first part of it. Uh, about then the house passes it in, in September, 2020, it's overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly supported by everyone. Um, there are three members who are all very libertarian leaning, who either had problems with some of like the business component requirements that, that the original bill had, or, um, Thomas Massey, who just opposes, he sent me a statement that was like, I just oppose all sanctions because like they hurt the like individuals more than various governments. Um, so he just votes against like all he's frequently the only one voting against a bill that the rest of Congress supports. And he ended up being the one person who opposed it in the end. Um, but that was, that was a huge vote. And, and they get it on the record that everyone like this is almost unanimous. And that's when corporations really started to get a little more alarmed about it. Um, and so they they made a like really strong push in the Senate uh, to, to water it down. And there were lots of ways they wanted to water it down. Um, the main one was we need more time. And the uh, congressional staff pushed back on that and said, forced labor products being imported into the United States has been illegal for more than 90 years. Um, and we closed a loophole in that in 2016. Like, how, like how much more time do you need? Right. Um, and it, they ended up adding, uh, I think it went from 120 days to 300 days. So they, 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 the Senate did end up being a little more pro business because it was, uh, held by Republicans at the time. It's more difficult to get things through that chamber procedurally. Um, there were a few other ways that it ended up a little more pro business. I'll, I'll get into those in a second, but there were other, like other Senate GOP staff wanted to uh, carve out a loophole for essential products uh, that come from the region that we don't have enough of. So at the time, it was the pandemic was was sort of raging. Um, part of that was like personal protective equipment. Um, yeah. but like, like Senator Rubio staff had to push back on that and say like, no, that is way too likely to get abused, um, by businesses who don't want to comply with this. Um, and then my favorite, well, I shouldn't have a favorite, but it was just so overt was a, a clothing, um, association wanted just not to have the ban. <laughs> so they, and, yeah. and it's all like, ca like caged in business speak. So they're like, we, we firmly support, um, like ending, like rooting out forced labor. And, and after you get through like two pages of that, you get to like the, the recommendations for Congress. And it's like, please be nicer to businesses. <laughs> like yeah. that, like that's, that's basically what it was. And, and they sort of made the case, you know, uh, like we just, we should just ask the administration to make it a strategy an enforcement strategy for forced labor related to Xinjiang and not actually have um, this presumption of forced labor for the region. Um, so there were, there were things like that and it, it ended up being tweaked, but the, like the core component, the main goal of the bill was it remained intact because yeah. Rubio's team was sort of able to, to effectively argue against it. And there was so much support in Congress. And he pushed it. hard. Marco Rubio in the Senate, yeah. Republican Senator from Florida pushed hard mm -hmm. on this again and again, and sort of didn't, didn't waver. Um, a lot of behind the scenes things that, um, that were reported at the time, but maybe didn't get the kind of attention they deserved until until your piece, mm -hmm. I would say. There were also, I mean, the, 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 the politics and the calendar complicated this process too, because this started in a different Congress with different composition and a different administration. How yeah. did that, how did that affect uh, the process of sort of getting this across the finish line? And were there concerns with that, those changes in power that this might just fall by the wayside? So early on, people were 
hoping it would move faster when Democrats had taken the Senate, when there was a Democratic president, because the holdup at that point had been Republican senators um, and, and the sort of the business community. Uh, Senator Rubio and Senator Jeff Merkley, who's an Oregon Democrat, he um, they reintroduced the bill in January 2021. Um, and in the in the months after that, it became sort of clear that this was still going to be a fight. Um, not only were corporations still pushing against it, and they still are today, like in terms of the implementation of it, they're still trying to water it down. Um, but at the time, it became clear that the, the Biden administration is sort of trying to strike a balance on cooperation with China and responding to their human rights abuses, um, which is difficult. And uh, and they they were not the, the things that they were saying publicly definitely more veered towards the climate priorities side of things. It right. was right. And and there was a hearing that that sort of freaked everyone out in May of 2021. Uh, climate envoy John Kerry goes to the House Foreign Affairs Committee and, and they were asking Chris Smith, who was a co-sponsor of this, this bill, a uh, long record on human rights in China, um, asked him about forced labor in, in solar supply chains. Like I mentioned, it's it's really pervasive. And Kerry during that hearing said, yeah, like, like that, that really is a big problem. But he also said, like, it's not his lane. Like he, like he was as climate envoy, his priority was climate. Um, and you didn't really have a <clears throat> co-equal force in the administration, like pushing the other lane. Like you didn't really have a co-equal force in the administration saying we need to move like more firmly on forced labor. Right. Um, and, and it played out there, there were people and, and, uh, people who who stronger records on trade who have focused on this kind of thing for for years within the administration who wanted this to happen and who were pushing for the bill and it, it, it was a debate um josh rogan at the washington post reported there was the administration before this bill passed took action against a um solar uh company in china um called hoshine silicon and there was a fierce debate he reported about those sanctions because they were worried that this would hurt their climate priorities. Um, yeah. Right. So that, that, that was really what it came down to in the end um, was whether they were going to prioritize that or try to do both. Yeah. And, I, and I have a quote from Nuri Turkle in there who says you, you can fight genocide and ecocide at the same time. And, and one of the sections we're publishing tomorrow has um, Senator Jeff Merkley played a really big role in, in advocating for action on this, even though he knew this would disrupt solar supply chains. And, and he's very progressive on climate, very, very strong supporter of human rights in China. Um, and, and I believe he said something to the effect of, if you have to choose one, it's human rights. He said yeah. he, he was telling that to senior administration officials. Um, he, he, he told them like, you can't, you can't say you shouldn't like it's 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 a, it's uh, human rights. You're complicit in the genocide if you're, you know, uh, buying cotton from Xinjiang, but also you can buy, you know, solar components from there. You like you have to you have to ban all of it. Um, right. And that that was a conversation that really played out over months and um, it played out over months. And, and at the same time, Kerry was sort of doing these negotiations with Chinese officials for, for climate priorities and. Um, he kept coming back from, from the trips or when he did interviews, just saying things that just like freaked out everyone, uh, who, who was working on, on China human rights issues, um, yeah. just really alarming. <laughs> he's, 
he said things that freaked out everybody on a number of different issues. Um, but, but this one in particular, I want to, so we now have a, a lot of questions and really good questions. So I, I suppose I need to stop hogging um, the microphone, but let, I, I do want to ask a couple quick questions and then I'm going to work in um, some questions here in my questions. One of the things you point out in the piece, and I think it's really, really important um, you know, this happens at a time of deep polarization. We spend a lot of time talking about that. We'll probably talk about it here in a few moments with Andrew and Jonah when we talk about the hearings today. Um, there's not much bipartisanship on anything. And this was a bipartisan effort. And um, I wonder, well, one of the things you reported was that it was this it's a very diverse coalition of interest groups mm -hmm. that was key to getting this thing ultimately passed. Who are those interest groups? Why are they interested? Mm -hmm. And is there anything, adapting a couple of questions that we've got here, anything that we can learn from this moment and this legislation that might be applicable to other uh, legislation that Congress would, would consider? Yes. Um, so if I had to summarize those groups, labor rights organizations who have been working on this kind of thing for a really long time in, in not just in China, but everywhere. Um, China, China hawks like like Senator Rubio um, brought in. And, 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 and a lot of people want to be China hawks right now. Right? A lot of people. And position. one of the aides I spoke to said, you know, I, I don't know if you would have had the same, like almost universal support for this, except the fact that it was happening in China, um, just given the, the political climate right now regarding China. Um, human rights groups, uh, a lot of like religious freedom groups. So it's not it's not just uh, the Uyghur groups, which there were several of them who worked hard on this. There was also um, an organization called Jewish World Watch that, that works on sort of genocide issues. Um, and they were they were involved in in scheduling conversations with con congressional staff, um, sort of advocating for the bill. Um, also, the ERLC, which is a like a component of the um, Southern Baptist Convention, they they were they ad advocate for for uh, various bills on Capitol Hill, and uh, this was one of them. They there was one striking letter um, after the Chamber of Commerce sort of came out about the uh, came out against this bill um, when the House first considered it. Um, the former ERLC uh, president, Russell Moore, basically told him to consider the eternal consequences of, of not supporting it. Uh, he, he told him to, to consider you know, the, the ultimate moral accountability that will come before a God who considers you know, a human life as, as infinitely precious. And, and um, so that was sort of the, the work that was going on uh, regarding this bill. And um, you ask what they learned from it. And um, Rushan Abbas, she, she told me, you know, part of it is you have to make it really personal. And I'm, I'm actually going to try to find the quote because it was powerful, but, um, she, so part of it was you, you have to put the human face to what's going on. And, and that's what she was doing. That's what, um, victims of the genocide were doing. Um, but she said, you have to make it about like the people in these countries that you want them to act. Like you have to, you, she, she said this, this is about you, your conscience as a human being, because the conscience of humanity is being tested here. Are we going to fail it or are we going to pass it? Um, so, so that was one of the lessons they learned. It was also persistence. It was, it was also um, even in the, in the places where they thought the bill was really close to being dead. Um, they didn't treat it like it was dead. 
I heard that from a few people that it was important not to sort of throw in the towel. Um, so th those are some of the, if you want me to get into some of the congressional takeaways here, I can. I would actually love to, before we get to some of the questions um, from people, one of the two last sections gets into this, but I don't think this bill would have come together or passed if not for the Congressional Executive Commission on China, because those those staffers, both for Rubio, for McGovern, um, and like people like Scott Flipsy, who are like uh, just who have been working there for a while, they had the bandwidth to work on this. Um, like like Peter Mattis, uh, who who was who was working, he was um, deputy staff director of the commission when the bill was introduced. Uh, he was working for Rubio. Former he, intelligence like, official. Yes, yes. It is. It, if you read Josh Rogan's book about China policy, Peter sort of has some cameos in there as well. Um, and he he had the time in his official capacity to he was of his own accord. People I talked to told me about this um, calling companies, calling business associations um, to talk about their supply chains and to tell them, like, we are serious about this. And like this was before the bill passed. This was. Mm -hmm you need to examine this and, and figure this out. Um, and, and so part of, part of how this bill passed was just the fact that the people in that commission had the time to work on it. A lot of offices don't have those resources and they have staff members leaving for other jobs because they're not well paid. Uh, so, so, you know, that's part of the takeaway too, is like you need to carve out those spaces where people can work for decades, people who have experience for decades on, on various policy issues, who are able to sort of think outside the box, who are able to sort of um, put the time into like, like advancing a bill across the finish line. Um, so that, that would be my more in, in the weeds lesson for Congress. Yeah, um, that's great. We, we are, I, I'm way over time and I have- Sorry. <laughs> and I'm not getting to everybody's questions. Maybe um, I'm, I'm calling an audible here. Um, maybe Haley, we could take some of the questions that we have that have not gone addressed and you could just answer them the bottom of the next uphill. Um, we certainly will have you back to talk more about this. This story isn't going anywhere. Um, you put in incredible amount of time and effort and we are grateful and proud of everything you did. I want to ask you a personal question if I can. Um, why did you care? so much about this? Why did you devote so much time? So I, and I mentioned it sort of at the beginning, I read that book by Bob Fu in high school. And um, like ever since then, human rights in China has been something I'm like, I really care about. Um, and I don't know, I, I just feel like it's important. And, and, and it gets lost in the news a lot uh, here in America. A, a lot of people are just don't know about it. Um, it's it's not some like an easy entry point into like learning. Like it's it, it can be it can take time to learn about what's going on over there. Um, so I I don't know. And and just as I met more of that in reporting this, like I had sort of had the honor to meet some of these human rights advocates and and to meet some people who have been impacted by the genocide. And um, I, it just feels like it's important for their stories to be told. Um, and so I'm grateful just at, at the dispatch to have had that capacity and, and bandwidth for something of this uh, magnitude. I, I know it's a long story, but um, you were you were willing to publish it. And, and I'm grateful for that. <laughs> I will warn any other dispatch staffers watching. 
this is not precedent. Um, <laughs> but we're great. It, it, it's great. It's great from beginning to end. Uh, happy to have all 20,000 words. Happy that you took the time that you did to do it. It's an excellent product. We had really good editing. Um, Mike Renault, one of our editors, worked on it with you. Andrew Egger, who's going to be joining us, did, uh, did a mammoth copy edit. Um, it really is just a great piece. We're very glad to have it. Um, and to, to at, at the risk of um, seeming like I'm uh, falsely praising or uh, or giving credit to the to the audience because you're here because you're members, we can do things like this. Um, this allows us to to uh, to give somebody like Haley time to do this this important work, and we're grateful for your support too. Um, Haley, thanks. I will share those questions with you and. I do think it's worth having you uh, answer them um, either in a piece, we'll do it as a standalone piece or something, but they're really good questions and we want to get them answered. Thanks for joining us. Um, Thanks so much. You are free to depart and we will okay. bring in uh, Jonah and Andrew. Thanks again. Okay. Bye. Andrew, <laughs> are, you, are you in a car, Andrew? I'm in a car, Steve. Hello. Doing are you like the foreign minister of Ukraine? Phone? I'm still in DC. I'm I'm on my I'm on my cell phone. So I I have yet to do a dispatch live except the one with uh, with Continetti. Um, all the others have been have been from the road, shoe leather. You know. Well, you're working hard. You were on Capitol Hill today for us covering the January sixth committee hearings. Jonah's had enough already. Um, so, oh, just locking the dogs out. Can you, Andrew? Um, Best place to start, I think, is with just a, a synopsis. What did you see? What happened in the, the January 6th committee hearing today? Sure. So um, the first thing I have to say about the January 6th committee, which I hadn't even realized until today, is that they, they do one thing that is a real bummer for journalists, which is that most of the time when you're reading uh, news reports, um, most journalists are really eager to tell you, like right in their story, what stuff is new, because that is to their own credit, right? They're like, by the way, this has never been previously reported. And when you yourself are reading it as another journalist, you're like, okay, oh, hey, that's useful. That is the new thing. Uh, you don't get that in the January 6th stuff. And it's been a long time since January 6th and the whole Stop the Steal movement when everything was so insane for, for several months um, that, that there is this weird sense as, an, as a reporter, when you're there in the room and they're recapping everything, you're like, now, which of these things are actually new and which of these things did I just kind of forget about because they were too insane to kind of hold on to in my brain? Um, so with that said, um, that that I my news sense has been kind of ruined by this thing and that I, I don't 100% know whether any of this stuff was previously reported. What today's hearing focused on was essentially um, the fact that, as we all know, sort of conceptually, um, Donald Trump essentially tried in 2020, um, despite the fact that he had lost several key swing states that ended up being determinative, um, ran this large um, messaging and pressure campaign uh, to try to convince his base more broadly and also Republicans in important positions in all of these states that actually it turned out that he had won. Um, and, and I guess we all kind of know that um, conceptually. I don't think any of us would have disputed that a week ago. Um, but what was remarkable, remarkable about this hearing today uh, was the, the sort of human element 
of all of that stuff. What they had in uh, 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 Rusty Bowers, who is the um, uh, uh, head of the Republican legislature in Arizona, one of those important swing states. They had in Brad Raffensperger and Gabe Sterling, who were two, I'm so sorry about this ambulance, it's about to drive by me. Uh, Brad Raffensperger and Gabe Sterling, who were two uh, critical Republican members of the Secretary of State's office. Brad Raffensperger is Secretary of State of Georgia. Gabe Sterling worked in his office. Um, and then and then they had a, 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 a worker who, uh, who was a just kind of previously not an important kind of person at all, um, who's, uh, uh, I'm, I'm so sorry. I'm, I'm forgetting her name now. Uh, uh, Shay, Shay something who was a Fulton County. Moss, right. Uh, yeah, I'm so sorry. Yes. Shay Moss. Yes, that's right. Uh, Fulton County, um, just elections official, just kind of a, a kind of rank and file person. Um, Fulton County, Georgia, during the election, who became kind of notorious in MAGA stop the steel circles, because according to Donald Trump, according to Rudy, Rudy Giuliani and some of these people, she was a nefarious figure who had, um, um, you know, committed villainous acts of, of, of election, uh, stealing essentially. Um, so, so, so essentially, uh, uh, we, we heard from all of these people, just, just kind of one element after another of, of just kind of how hard it was as, as officials, as people kind of embedded at one point or another in, in, in the election counting infrastructure um, especially given just kind of the, the lengthy process that that counting all of those ballots was in 2020 because of the pandemic, yeah. just how how there was actually a remarkable amount of kind of courage and 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 strength of character required just to do kind of the basics of their jobs. Yeah. Um, uh, and, and particularly, this is this this part goes for goes for Bowers and Raffensperger and Sterling because because these people were all fellow Republican elected officials who um, who received kind of personal direct one on one pressure from Donald Trump at some point in the in the whole proceeding uh, to to put the thumb on the scale in in one way or another and and and, and hand over the election to him and they. And, and, and a lot of this part was, was stuff that we already knew, right? I mean, we, especially as far as Raffensperger is concerned, he's kind of notorious uh, for, for in the wake of the 2020 election, um, um, kind of fight, waging a counter messaging offensive against Donald Trump and, and, and kind of going point by point on social media and in press conferences and, and, and refuting a lot of his like stolen election um, allegations and things like that. And then of course, uh, the big thing was that his office, somebody in his office ended up leaking an hour long phone call, yeah. uh, uh, where, where president Trump had just kind of wheedled and badgered and kind of threatened and, and, and cajoled him, uh, for, for just over and over and over again. Now, look, you and I both know that I actually won this state by, you know, 400,000 votes or something like that. And I only need you to come up with 11,000, just find me those 11,000 votes. And, 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 and it's so obvious that, that I, that I, that you could just deliver them to me. You could just hand them over to me if you wanted to, everyone will love you. If you do, it'll, you know, why, what are you even worried about? You'll be a hero. Uh, and it might not go so good for you if you don't. And I mean, and I, I mean, I, I covered the, I remember, I remember the call when it came out, I listened to the whole thing at the time. I think I wrote about it at the time. 
it is really remarkable. I mean, just, it's amazing. Just listening to those clips again today was it, it, it is just amazing to hear it sort of in real time as it as it played out. Uh, Jonah, let me bring you in here. The uh, one of the things. So one of the things that we saw in the hearing today is consistent with what we've seen and heard throughout the committee's process, which is Republicans taking on Donald Trump. Republicans are the people who are being put forward as the spokesman for clean elections, for pushing back on Trump. Uh, I think that's been very effective in each of the hearings. I thought it was particularly effective today. And then the second thing that I thought was notable, picking up on on Andrew's points, is I I thought some of the testimony today, I did not watch the entire thing. I listened to it in, in snatches, but there were parts of it that I saw or heard that, that were surprisingly moving, surprisingly powerful and emotional. This is that is not what I expected as we, as we talked, Andrew, before you went over to cover it today, as we tried to plot out how we were going to to cover the hearings. I did not expect these to be emotional and powerful. Uh, Jonah, what were your thoughts as you watched the hearing and what are your takeaways? Yeah, I mean, I. I, I generally agree. Um, part of the problem for watching, I mean, I'm sort of with Andrew on this, is that when you see all these these things, it wasn't just that things were so crazy back then, is that there were so many crazy things happening all at once, and it was sort of like a fire hose. And so the I remember the story about the these two election workers who were called out by name, but I didn't focus on it at the time because there was all this other stuff going on. And so to have it sort of have the narrative rebalanced and recalibrated so you have the it's it's still all the same ingredients for the most part but the the proportions of what the ingredients are changes because you have the benefit of hindsight to sort of recalibrate the narrative and so the election workers there's lady ruby and 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 shay i can't remember her name wow. either yep. yeah um i agree they were very moving and i think that one of the things that made them moving was um and I don't mean this in a condescending or a net pejorative way, is that they were so clearly amateurs. These yeah. were just not people who had spent a lot of their lives talking in front of cameras or audiences that they were, in fact, sort of out of central casting is like fundamentally. Yes. Yeah. Fundamentally, just decent black ladies who care a lot about voting and <laughs> democracy and civic responsibility. And, you know, so sometimes when like Lady Ruby got a little grandiose in her stuff, you're like, she gets a pass. Cause like, this is someone plucked out at random. And I think that's one of the things that made it effective. I have to say that one of the, it's not a big thing, but I, I thought it was, maybe it's cause I'm sort of geeky about the sort of intellectual strains in this stuff. When Bowers, the speaker of the Arizona um, uh, house quite emphatically said it is an article of my it is a tenet of my faith that the constitution was divinely inspired and i wasn't going to violate that oath without any evidence or without or based on cheating or whatever you know he went on all these different things one i thought it was moving on the on the on the merits but two i was like oh my gosh he's he's a member of the church of latter-day saints because it's it's really not a tenet of Catholicism or most, Edgar can correct me on this, or most 
forms of Protestantism that the Constitution was was divinely inspired. And I was like, that's going to be interesting to see how that plays out in that world. And I Googled earlier today, or an hour before this thing started, and lo and behold, the Salt Lake City Tribune is setting up a big theological fight between Mike Lee and, and Bowers about how they both claim to have the same faith, but they took two very different positions. And um, I just thought it was interesting how that was going to be sort of a Nightingale song for certain communities about stuff. And I, I wonder how many, how much, how much, what kind of legs it'll have afterwards. Yeah, I, I thought I really thought the the, the testimony from Shamos in particular, she was the one who, who said, if I'm not mistaken, look, I don't want to be here. I didn't want this. I don't want anybody to know my name. I, I never wanted fame out of this. I just did it because it was my civic duty. And at one point she said, I've put on 60 pounds as yeah. a result of this. I've been harassed relentlessly. You it's know? like you and me talking about the dispatch. <laughs> Dispatcher COVID, all of the above. But I mean, I, I found that just tremendously powerful. She's yeah. saying, I don't want to do this. I don't want anything to do with this. And this has been thrust upon me. And to me, to me, I mean, the that that was the the, the biggest takeaway of today was really kind of the, the human toll um that that these people faced. And 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 specifically, I mean, both 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 Shamos and and I don't know if we've even said that the, the two election workers uh uh who 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 spoke to the committee today were Shamos and then Lady Ruby. Ruby Freeman was her mother. So it was a mother-daughter, right. um, um, I guess pair of election workers in Fulton County. And they, they talked about uh, their grandmother as well as a person who was, was really involved in their lives. It was just this family. Um, so, so this one family, and then, and then also Rusty Bowers in, in Arizona, um, who, who testified first, both of these, these, these groups, Rusty Bowers and then this family, I mean, the, the, the ways in which they talked about how they had kind of been ill used by the, the president of the United States and his, and his whole kind of rogues gallery. Um, in the attempt to steal this election, for for both of them, it was it was really remarkably grounded in in kind of their their sense of themselves as as Americans that 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 we're we're American citizens who are who are participating in this kind of unique process that we have, and it is in our doing our duties in this way that has put us in your crosshairs. Um, the, 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 the very last piece of testimony in the whole hearing, um, which was, which was from Shay Moss's mother, Ruby Freeman, Lady, Lady Ruby, as she talked about herself, um, she, and, and this was pre-taped, this was, this was from an interview with the committee, but, but she said there is, and this is, this is present day. I mean, the, she said, there is nowhere I feel safe, nowhere. Do you know how it feels to have the president of the United States target you? The president of the United States is supposed to represent every American, not to target one, but he targeted me, a small business owner, a mother, a proud American citizen who stood up to help Fulton County run an election in the middle of a pandemic. And I mean, you can't argue with that. I mean, that's 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 100 percent just biographically true that 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 these people kind of stepped forward <laughs> at a crazy time. I don't know how well you guys remember 2020, <laughs> but that was a remarkable wild time. Um, and they were there kind of as as just kind of frontline people helping us to elect our next slate of leaders. And that in their actions in doing that, they became targets. Um, and I also would wanted to read um, um, uh, Rusty Bowers uh, comparable testimony, which was much earlier in the day. But he read off. And again, he's the 
uh, um, uh, majority leader of the Arizona uh, House, uh, Republican lawmaker in charge of a Republican body, um, but who uh, partially, like we said, because of his Mormon faith, um, faith in kind of the, the divine uh, inspiration of the United States Constitution, uh, really was recalcitrant and reticent against um, um, going along with with Giuliani and Trump. He, he talked at a couple of points in time about how they basically said, well, you know, just do what we want. And then the courts will sort it out, you know, like yeah. it's not your your deal. Um, you know, you just you just kind of help us out here and then and then it'll go to the courts. And he really just kind of recoiled from that because he's like, well, I also have a duty here, you know. Right. Um, uh, and 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 what he 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 kind of read into the into the record at prompting from the committee a journal entry that he had made in in December of 2020, and I'll just read it off because um, because it was really striking. Um, but he just said, "It is painful to have friends who have been such a help to me turn on me with such rancor. I may, in the eyes of men, not hold correct opinions or act according to their visions or convictions, but I do not take this current situation in a light manner." a fearful manner or a vengeful manner. I do not want to be a winner by cheating. I will not play with laws I swore allegiance to with any contrived desire towards deflection of my deep foundational desire to follow God's will as I believe he led my conscience to embrace. How else will I ever approach him in the wilderness of life, knowing that I ask this guidance only to show myself a coward in defending the course he led me to take? Yeah. I mean, when he read that, I mean, everybody in the whole room was kind of like, oh, my gosh, like, whoa, what's what's uh, this has become far more grave. And uh, and in fact, that was basically the last thing he said. And, and the contrast, and the whole- I, I think the, the contrast there was so powerful because, you know, one of the other things that, that really came through, I thought, was what a total clown show. The Giuliani, the Giuliani, Jenna Ellis operation. They didn't they didn't call these people and say, we have the following 12 facts on our side that compel us to tell you you need to reconsider and we're going to build an extravagant legal case around these new, like there was none of that it was just a it was just sort of a, a joke and i suppose at this point Jonah we shouldn't we shouldn't be surprised at that but i think what made the bowers testimony particularly powerful was that contrast was this was just such a clown show and you, then you have these people you know taking this so seriously yeah and also like it's easy particularly for i mean not to break the fourth wall here but for the three of us who had spent much of the last 5 years making fun of you know looking down our noses at people who had been clowning themselves in all sorts of ways, in the name of Trumpism, it was a little easy. I think it was a little easier for us to spot that kind of thing when we saw it with with Giuliani during the recount. Plus, we were just paying hyper attention to the facts. We were running fact checks all the time. But if you're a politician in Arizona, where everybody loves Trump and wants Trump to win, and all the people that you're taking your cues from are like, "Let's do this," you know, "Let's you know, let's win one for the Gipper." Kind of, well, not the Gipper, but, um, you know, let's win one for the team. It actually, you know, like, like I, I can I could almost hear certain personalities at Fox rolling their eyes at the grandiosity of his journal entry. But he wrote that at a moment when, like, it was not at all clear that he wasn't just going to, like, lose his career, lose the fight, look like an idiot. Um, 
And, you know, so I have an enormous amount of respect for it. Um, and look, I mean, look, the, the melting hair shoe polish coming out of Giuliani's head made it a little recognizable at the time about his clownishness. But and even the Four so, Seasons press conference. I yeah, mean, but even so, it, there, there was a sense back then that all the right people on our team are in favor of following Trump's strategy because even as these hearings have demonstrated the quote-unquote team normal, their definition of normal was say stuff in private but not in public. There are just very few people right. within the party pushing back. And so like Giuliani and Sidney Powell and all these people had the blessings of the president. And, you know, Mike Pence did, wasn't saying anything until January 6th. And neither was anybody else in any serious position except for Raffensper you know, Ravensburger and Sterling. These are not people that, you know, household Republicans, you know, like are not household names among Republicans who like sway opinion. So it was, it was a much more courageous thing than it might seem in retrospect even yeah. though it does seem pretty courageous, you know, in retrospect. I, th I think that's right. We are past time by two minutes. We're trying to keep these to an hour. Um, I apologize. I did a crummy job of, of navigating the questions. We had way too many uh, questions that didn't go responded to. Can I ask um, one point of information and will you take this time against me later? Sure. So, Edgar, you claim to be in D.C. That's correct. I, I, that is my claim. Okay, so I am in D.C. as well. That is the window behind me. It's total darkness. <laughs> the window behind you still has blue sky in it. What's up with that? I'm, I'm guessing that's actually a color correction thing on my phone. Uh, there's more light ahead of me, as maybe you can... No, nah, it's probably headlights, actually, that are reflecting. That sounds metaphorical. I was but, just going to uh, say, so I'm, uh, there's more I'm light in, ahead of him. I'm still on Capitol Hill. I don't know where you are. Uh much farther, much farther west, I guess. Oh, that is, that is <laughs> I am farther west, but I didn't think yeah. you were farther west. Yeah, anyway, yeah, I just, no. and I think it's uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm right in front of the Heritage Foundation as it happens uh, in my in my oh, little vehicle. So maybe it's the glow of the Eye of Mordor, and if we need our Sauron or whatever. We don't need <laughs> is to that. Is that what that. it is? Is that what it is? That's that's uh, that's the new that's the new. Totally lost. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, we, we, I mean, Marjorie Taylor Greene and is speaking there. I think tomorrow is that right? Is that what we were reading earlier today? Anyway, we don't need to get into that right now. But. Yeah, we, when we go to sci-fi, my inclination is just to cut it off right away. Just cut it off. Fair enough. Um, Classic sci-fi, like the Lord of the Rings. Yeah, right. Yeah, the same all thing. those robots. All, uh, <laughs> it's sci-fi in the same way. You know what I mean? Fantasy, sci-fi, uh, stuff that's uh, not real. Um, <laughs> thank you both for joining us i'm glad we did this you can read andrew's um report on the hearing in tomorrow's morning dispatch uh jonah i'm certain that we will be discussing this later this week on the dispatch podcast um along probably with more haley's piece and and we will figure out a format to get those other questions um they're really good questions submitted to haley we'll we'll figure out a format to get those answered and and uh and let everybody know we're four minutes past Thank you both for doing this. Thank you all for joining us and we will see you uh, same time next week, next Tuesday. Good night.